Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Uh, this series of podcasts, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, I encourage you to do so by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth Podcast. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Mark, and today we're in the second part of chapter 11. We ended last time in verses 1 through 11 with verse 11, which says, He entered Jerusalem, and he came into the temple. After looking around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. And we asked ourselves this question, why, why this obscure verse? After all, if Mark's going to tell us that Jesus went into Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and he looked around, what does not Mark tell us what he saw? Uh, why leave it at that? Why just he departed for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late? Uh, if he's not going to tell us what he saw, why even tell us at all? And we made note of the fact that the Gospel of Mark began with this quotation from three Old Testament verses. Though Mark only attributes them to Isaiah, the Mark, uh, Mark chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 are actually a quote from Malachi chapter 3 from the book of Exodus and also from the book of Isaiah. And Malachi 3 says, verse 1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. He'll clear the way before me which the Gospels seem to understand as a reference to John the Baptist, the messenger who will clear the way before me. But then the middle of verse 1 says in Malachi 3, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Uh, and there, Mark's readers have been expecting this all along. This obscure reference in verse 11 as to Jesus entering Jerusalem and looking around and then leaving uh, is something that the, this, that the readers of Mark's Gospel, especially the Jewish ones, would have been anticipating. All along, they know that the one who's preparing the way is the one who's preparing the way for the Lord, and the Lord is coming into his temple. Now, we noted also that Mark's gospel never has Jesus in the city of Jerusalem until now. It's not until chapter 11, verse 11, that Jesus enters Jerusalem for the first time. We know, of course, from Matthew and Luke and from John that Jesus has been in Jerusalem perhaps even a number of times uh, earlier, but Mark's readers, this is the moment of climax. Jesus is the one coming to his temple. Now, while we're in the Malachi chapter 3, let me note verse 2. It says, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. So even though we're expecting Jesus to enter Jerusalem and to look around, we actually might want to pay attention. He's coming for judgment on Jerusalem. Verse 12, it says in Mark chapter 11, On the next day, when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said uh, to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Jesus departs Bethany, or it's apparently the city he had been living in the, during this last week of his life. And he went to see if the fig tree had any leaves. Now, when the fig tree's leaves appear in late March, they're usually accompanied by small knobs called pagim. Uh, these knobs uh, are picked and sometimes eaten by some, though they're not ripe. They are edible. So the absence of this knob indicates that there will be no fruit this year. You see, the fig tree doesn't actually bear fruit until around or sometime in June. But the pagim would already be present. Now, Mark even notes it's not the season for figs, uh, but it was the season for the pagim. It was the season for the the leaves and the edible little knobs to be present that would indicate that this tree is actually going to bear fruit. Remember, Jesus' crucifixion is probably sometime in the spring uh, around, the, around the month of April. So the search for figs, for figs when it was not the season for figs, 
suggests that Jesus is searching for something beyond just food. The time is fulfilled, he says. Israel has to see it. Now, Ezekiel, by the way, in chapter 47, envisions a new temple where the leaves of the tree will bear fruit every month. Uh, in Mark, fruit is found in, believe, in, in a believing response to Jesus. Note That's in chapter 4, verse 20. Note the reference to the disciples were listening in verse 14. Um, Blessed is the one who hears. Remember the primary parable that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark was in chapter 4. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So it's very likely that Mark wants his readers and expects his readers to tie what's happening here to the parable of the, uh, of the sower and of the soils in chapter 4. Jesus curses the fig tree and says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now the fig tree is a, is a common symbol of judgment in, in, in the Old Testament, especially uh, in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 13 says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. So the symbol of the fig tree as a symbol of judgment is being used by Jesus here now as a symbol of judgment on the temple. The disciples were listening, as we noted, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is condemning the temple establishment rather than restoring it. Instead of announcing a cure for the temple, he's announcing its destruction. Now remember, the fig tree is a common symbol for Israel and for the prosperous land, both in Micah and Zechariah and in Joel. Destroying of vines and fig trees, though, were often a common symbol of judgment upon Israel and upon the nation. Now, as we noted earlier in our study of the Gospel of Mark, it's going to be very important to notice the presence uh, of sandwiching, where Mark will tell a story, interrupt it with another story, and then go back to the first story. So that verse 11 that we thought was so obscure and random, Jesus entered Jerusalem and he came into the temple and he looked around, is actually the part of a sandwich. Note verse 11, Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he entered into the temple. Look at verse 15, Mark 11, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. So verses 12, 13, and 14 then provide us the sandwich, this, the centerpiece. Uh, and as we notice with sandwiches, where Mark will tell a story, interrupt it with another story, and then come back to the first story. Uh, and in this instance, it's entering Jerusalem, entering into the temple in verse 11, entering into Jerusalem, entering into the temple in verse 15. There's something in the middle. And that story in the middle, or that episode in the middle, always provides the primary means for understanding the outside. And what happens in the middle? In the middle, Jesus curses a fig tree because it has no fruit. So we go back to chapter 11, verse 11. He entered Jerusalem and he came to the temple and he looked around. And we ask ourselves, well, well what did he see? And why, why does Mark tell, not tell us what he saw? And, and why does Mark even tell us that Jesus entered Jerusalem and looked around at all in the temple if he's not going to tell us what he saw? And now we realize what he saw. What he saw was no fruit. The fact that the fig tree has no fruit is sandwiched between the story of the episodes in verse 11 and 15 and Jesus going to Jerusalem and in the temple tells us that he finds no fruit. Now, the fact that Jesus entered Jerusalem and found no fruit, and that's what he was looking for, is going to be confirmed for us as we continue on. Verse 15 again. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He began to teach them, saying, and said to them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes who heard this began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teachings. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. 
Now we're going to have another sandwich again here in, in, in just a second. We'll point that out. But let's note again what happens. Jesus enters Jerusalem and he goes in the temple and he begins clearing out those who are buying and selling there. Now, likely place of where this is happening is called the Court of Gentiles. Now, the most common interpretation of this passage has become very popular is that they were using the, the temple for unfavorable business practices. And if they were doing that, then the question becomes, why didn't Jesus cast the buyers out also? Um, why also the tables of those who are selling doves? Why, is, why did you overthrow those tables as well? After all, the doves were, were used for the poor. Now, the idea of not permitting anyone to carry goods to the temple, well, the law forbids the temple being used as a thoroughfare. Um, and and, and when, he, when he says goods, the Greek word actually for carrying goods is, is the Greek word skeuos, which means a cultic vessels. Uh, this would mean the cessation of temple activities. If Jesus is not permitting them to carry temple uh, cultic vessels, he's actually stopping them from operating the temple. In other words, it's not as the common perception that, that we see today, Todd, is that Jesus is not upset because of the things that they're doing in the temple, the idea being that that they were charging elaborate rates of exchange and defrauding the people who, who had come into Jerusalem for the various festivities and festivals. Maybe they, they live far off in, in Ephesus or wherever, and they, they come to Jerusalem and they need to exchange uh, their money. The, the Jews had temple coins that were allowed by the Romans to be used only in the uh, exercise of, of economics within the temple. So they had these Roman coins and they had to exchange them. So what we're commonly told is that the, is that the Jewish authorities had decided that when there was an influx of people or, or um, uh, visitors to the temple that they would raise the exchange rate and they were ripping people off and Jesus was upset with that. But that doesn't fit the context. Jesus is not upset with that. Remember, he's upset because he finds no fruit. Jesus goes on to quote the book of Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7 and, and verse uh, 17. He says, Is it not written that my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. A den of robbers. Instead of a place of prayer, it's a den of robbers. The focus is on the temple and not so much on the persons. Uh, Jeremiah, which we're going to look at in just a moment, speaks about the temple and its, direct, and its destruction. And in both Jeremiah and in Jesus, which Jesus is quoting Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7 when he says, you've made it a den of robbers. Both Jeremiah and Jesus are very strong. They both prophesy against the temple from the midst of the temple. Jeremiah is arrested and sentenced to death, although he's ultimately spared, whereas Jesus is arrested and actually sentenced to death. The chief priests and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began for look, to look for a way to kill him. The Gospels indicate that Jesus' clearing of the temple became the final motivating factor for the Jewish leaders to seek Jesus' death. They're going to hesitate, however, because of fear of the people. Now, what's important to note is that what Jesus has done here is what's called an enacted parable of judgment. See, you see, a prophet can speak words and say, thus says the Lord, and refer to what God's about to do in a good way or in a bad way for the people. But sometimes a prophet can actually do an act. He, you know, he can lie naked on his side, as one of the prophets do for three and a half years. Uh, in this instance, Jesus does an enacted parable. Instead of speaking about the judgment and destruction of the temple, he demonstrates it by throwing the money changers tables and creating havoc and chaos in the temple, saying, this is what God's about to do to this place, because instead of making it a house of prayer for the nations, you've made it a den of robbers. Now, note, of course, that Jesus quotes Jeremiah chapter 7. And let me read Jeremiah 7, verses 3 through 15, and you'll see the significance of, uh, of the parallels. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place, says Jeremiah. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn the incense to Baal and follow after other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling in my, for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of, the pe- of my people Israel. While you're doing all these things, declares the Lord, I have spoken to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will do now to the house that bears my name. The temple you trust in, the place I gave you and your ancestors, I, I will thrust you from my presence, just as, as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. They've broken the commandments, uh, uh, Jeremiah says. They've oppressed the alien, the orphan, and the widow. You see, it's not what they were doing in the temple that was the problem. Jesus was not upset because they had these high inflationary rates of exchange for the people who were coming in from afar for the festivities. In fact, the reference to it being a den of robber, robbers, you see, a, a den of robbers is ro- where robbers go to hide. It's not where robbers commit their crimes. Jesus was condemning them because you have no fruit out there. You're, you're oppressing the alien and the orphan and the widow. And because of that, you then come into the temple. Note what, what, what he, uh, Jeremiah says. Uh, you know, if you, if you don't oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and you don't shed innocent blood in this place, and if you don't fall off the other gods your home, then I'll let you live. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words. Uh, you steal, murder, commit adultery, and perjury, burn incense to Baal, fall after other gods, and then you come and stand before me in this house. It's not what they were doing in the temple that was the problem so much. It was what they were doing outside the temple. So Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he looks around and he sees no fruit. And because he sees no fruit, he condemns the fig tree. And in the condemning the fig tree, it parallels, of course, the condemning. It's a, a, a prophetic act of judgment upon the temple and the temple establishment. Now note again that we have another uh, sandwich. In verses 12 through 14, Jesus references the, uh, Mark references Jesus' cursing of the fig tree. In verses 20 and 21, Peter says, sees the fig tree, which has been cursed, has been withered. In the middle of that, verses 15 through 19, Jesus goes into the temple and overthrows the money changers' tables. This act, then, is not a cleansing of the temple, as many people suppose. It's an enacted parable of judgment on the temple. Think about it. Jesus didn't cleanse the temple as though, okay, now everything's all fine and dandy. Once Jesus walked out of the temple, what did they do? They they picked up all the money and they picked up all the tables and they went right back about all their business. Jesus wasn't cleansing the temple. He was pronouncing an act of judgment upon the temple. Uh, upon the temple. Verse 22 then says, Jesus answered saying to Peter, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what, that what he says is going to happen, it should be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they should be granted you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if anything, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father forgive, uh, Father in heaven forgive your transgressions.
Jesus says, if anyone says now to this mountain, verse 23, be cast into the sea. Uh, the phrase this mountain indicates a specific, a, a definite, a particular mountain. And it can only refer to the temple mount. After all, everything in chapters 11 and 12 refers to the coming impending judgment upon the temple, which is especially indicated in chapter 13. So now the sea, of course, is going to be synonymous with the swine earlier in chapter 5. Remember the, the, the demons were cast, they wanted to be cast into the pigs, but the pigs then rushed headlong into the sea. The sea is also, of course, synonymous with uh, hell or suffering or uh, um, the, 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 the endless abyss, uh, destruction, chaos. So this temple, if, if you have faith and you say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and you don't doubt in your heart, but believe, it will be done. Now, preparation for the disciples, of course, and, and uh, re requires that they have this genuine conviction, this genuine faith that such as a request is, is, the, is the will of God. But they also have a willingness to forgive others, a faith that's put into practice. You see, these are the three key elements of the temple, faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Faith that it happens, prayer, Jesus just said it's, the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, and then forgiveness. That's what the sacrificial system was all about, creating a system where forgiveness could be uh, put into play. Now you see Jesus, uh, as we know Mark's going to take us here, Jesus is going to replace the temple or fulfill the role of the temple. The temple establishment as it was, was corrupt and defiled and lacking of fruit. They didn't have faith, they didn't have prayer, not certainly not for the nations, and real forgiveness was not available through it. Now it's going to be fulfilled in and through the person of Jesus. Jesus is going to be the new temple. And if the disciples are going to fulfill that ministry, then they need to have a genuine faith. A genuine faith that creates a place of prayer for the nations, but that also creates a place where forgiveness is available. A faith that's put into practice. Now, the Jewish people respond by verse 27 to finish up chapter 11. by They came into Jerusalem again. He was walking into the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, Jesus' response is going to indicate that, or going to seem to indicate, that he's not about to answer their question. But as we look carefully, both at the end of chapter 11 and next time in the beginning of chapter 12, we're going to note that Jesus actually does answer their question. Verse 29, Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question, and then you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning from one another amongst themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, Then why didn't you believe him? But shall we? What if we say from men, they were afraid of the multitude, for they all considered John to have been a prophet indeed. And answering Jesus, they said, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, although it seems as if he directly states, I'm not going to tell you, as we'll see in chapter 12, the parable in chapter 12 is actually going to be Jesus' answer. Because it says he began to speak to them in parables. So he's not answering them directly, but he is answering them in the form of a parable. The problem is, is that they don't have ears to hear. Remember, the parables were only going to be known and understood by those who have ears to hear. Now, authority, temple, and judgment are going to be these three major themes then. So Jesus goes into Jerusalem again. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, the, the officials of the Sanhedrin, they begin to question Jesus. What authority do you have these things? You know, do, do you have to do these things? No indication whether is given whether they would accept Jesus' answer, but we know that they've already been planning to kill him from chapter 3, so it's certain Jesus has no need to really answer them because it's not going to do him any good. But Jesus replies in rabbinic fashion, and that is with a question of his own. 
rabbis were known to answer questions with a question. So what authority do you have to do these things? And the answer is, well, here's my question to you, and that is, by what authority did John baptize? From heaven or from men? So we realize, actually, then, if we look carefully, the answer to that question is going to be the answer to the question that Jesus was just asked. We know that the, Jesus' answer was that John baptized from heaven. That's where he got his authority. And, that, and therefore, we might assume Jesus' answer is, my authority comes from heaven as well. The parable of chapter 12 is going to confirm that that's where Jesus got his authority from. My authority was from heaven. The problem is, is you won't accept it. So Jesus seemingly refuses to answer them. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.